After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got a goal! Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go! We are kicking. Watch the blue! Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, baby. Number 47 for Boston. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! You know what I'm thinking about the Stanley Cup playoffs, Josh? I'm thinking that Calgary Flames coach Daryl Sutter is right. When he's talking about the playoffs and the series that's going on with the Edmonton Oilers, it's 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 maybe a bit of an, a, an epic battle to some, but really... It's a, it's a unifying force. It's bringing people together and it's doing it in every building because every crowd has been chanting, ref, you suck. It's something everyone <laughs> can get on side with. You know, it's it's nice to be responsible for unifying fan bases of competing teams to to just find that that shared love for hating the officials. Maybe maybe next year, the Stanley Cup playoffs, instead of, you know, the slogans of, you know, he wants it, they want it, somebody is just bringing people together. Maybe yes. that's something that the, the league could look at as the campaign for next year. Much, much better and much catchier than the Stanley Cup, because you <laughs> suck. <laughs> This is the Scouting the Refs podcast. Please make sure you're following our social channels for all sorts of interesting info, at least from Josh. You, you don't, never know what you're going to get with me. At Scouting the Refs on Twitter and Instagram is how you follow Josh. For me, it's at Todd Lewis Sports on Twitter and Instagram once again. On this week's episode, finishing up some round one leftovers, a hearing, but no punishment, who's in for round two, but my bucket, and staying off the golf course. Let's do this one first, as a matter of fact. The officials for the second round were announced, as with the teams, there are some that are dropped moving into the second round, and one of them was working at his side hustle, and that was referee Garrett Rank, who was competing in an amateur golf tournament qualifier when he got word that he was going to be working in the second round of the NHL postseason, so he had to withdraw from the tournament. My question here, Josh, is... Do you think they sounded the alarm like when storms are around on the golf course? Is that how they alerted Garrett Rank or did they just send someone out to tell him? Yeah, it was like the missed goal in an NHL arena. They just sent the horn. They just uh, <laughs> just sounded the horn and told him. Had to call him over to the official scorer's table, tell him that he had to pack his bags and get out of there. But unfortunate for him. I mean, a guy who's qualified for the U.S. Open in the past was hoping to do so again and gets tapped to fly out to Denver for game one just to work standby. Mm, that's tough. Just to to be sitting, you know, stripes on, skates at the ready, and just, it, it, he's got to be able to, he's going to get into a game, isn't he? I, I have to think so. I, I don't know. I mean, you don't want anybody to get injured. You don't want anybody to be sick, but he's he's on the standby list for this round. So it's, it's very likely that barring misadventure or illness, that, that Rank will see action on the ice during the second round. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe uh, it would have been tough to go back and forth to play during the day and then be standby at <laughs> night, I guess. Hey, you know what? If, if anybody can make it work, this guy has juggled a career as a full-time NHL official and a top-ranked golfer. So if, if anybody can do it, I have faith that Garrett Rank could. Well, good for him. Okay. I have another question before we get into some of the NHL things. The question is, whatever became of the ref cam in the NHL, it debuted to 
much fanfare a couple of seasons ago. We got some real close-up looks. Uh, some of the social media and mainstream media made noise about calls all of a sudden, and then it just sort of went away. And it was sort of the, well, we need to do some more work to make improvements, but it has not returned, except if you're watching the World Hockey Championships, where I saw the other day that there's a camera on top of the referee's bucket. It just kind of makes you go, hmm, doesn't it, Josh? version but still it, it gives you that perspective there so uh, wonderful to see it in the double ihf tournaments from an nhl standpoint they wanted it as part of the broadcast they wanted it to be available you put the camera on the head it's one thing if it's recording but to be part of the live broadcast you've got a battery pack you've got a transmitter and from what i understand they they were bulky uh, they were potentially painful if you went down but uh, just the weight of the gear was a bit much for the guys and unless they can refine it a little bit make it a little lighter a little less cumbersome i, I don't think we'll see it back in the nhl they really they want to have it for those live broadcasts so there's that additional demand but you know what todd I'm fine with seeing it on delay. I'm fine with the next day ref cam recap. We can just strap the GoPro on there, hit record and and chop it up afterwards. So I think that would be an option, but it's one that the league hasn't pursued. So until they can make it lighter, faster and, and better for the broadcast, I, I unfortunately don't see it making a comeback just yet. They need a bionic uh, ref cam, I guess is what you're saying. <laughs> and that does make sense because you do have to carry around significant battery pack to to operate a live camera but you're you're absolutely right uh, a gopro is what two inches by two inches that would you could duct tape it to somebody it would be easy yeah put it on there they have the helmets with the integrated camera in there not for live broadcast but at least from a recording standpoint so uh, maybe that is something that the nhl could look at I, I don't think the officials were opposed to it you know obviously everything's going through the league so it, it isn't going to show anything that's unflattering or unfavorable no. there and and i understand that but you know, maybe maybe we can convince somebody to reopen that can of worms and at least give us some highlights from the ref cam because it was a great look. And I think it really made folks appreciate what life is like for an NHL official, especially those who've never put on the stripes, who've, who've never officiated a game just to see what the speed is and what the challenges are and what the sight lines look like. You can learn so much just from watching. Here's the sales pitch to use. It would be, as you mentioned, a great educational tool for the audience it would be a great teaching tool for officials as well and and help improve the the quality standard of, of referee I, I i think that's maybe the way to approach it yep and i think it's great for the officials it's great even when the officials get feedback and remember they do mm -hmm. after every game from officiating supervisors if they could pull the camera footage and see here's what your sight line was here's what you were seeing and, and not even just for them but for other officials to say this was the sight line this guy had and you can see that either hey this was a great sight line he was in the right spot or you can see why you should have changed your position so not only at the nhl level but all levels there's there's probably a lot of opportunity for teaching coaching and even sharing that official's perspective. So something something that maybe, you know, we enjoy the fun of it, but there's a lot of opportunity from an educational standpoint as well, Todd. You're right. A couple of leftovers from the first round that we should clean up, most of them having to do with cash out of pocket. Carolina's Brendan Smith gets fined $2,000 for elbowing David Pasternak. Bruins' Charlie McAvoy gets fined $5,000 for tripping Brady Shea. 
Maybe we should call that and use our new term, the slew trip. That was absolutely a slew trip. I mean, that was that was a, a scary one too because McAvoy swung his McAvoy swung his stick and just swept out Shay's skates. And those are the types of plays where you've got a guy coming down hard. If he's lucky, it's on his back, and and if he's not, it's on his neck or his the back of his helmet, which potentially could be a significant injury there. So a scary moment. I, I know McAvoy was frustrated and just looking to uh, to take a shot there, but one that could have gone far worse. And thankfully it didn't, but certainly deserving of a fine. One other fine that was handed out was to Ben Sherratt for the headbutt. It was $5,000. And then, I don't know, could he have received a little more punishment? Quite possibly. I don't think so. I, I think they got this one right. I think this was sending a message with the fine to say, hey guys, remember, you can't headbutt. We saw Nurse get a game for... A, <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't that be an obvious? <laughs> you would think, right? We saw what Nurse got, and that, that set the bar admittedly pretty low to, to do one game for the aggressive billy goat hop right into the face. So if that's one game, what Sherratt did definitely doesn't deserve that. And, and I think the officials got it right on the ice as well. Headbutts are pretty severely penalized in the rulebook. It's an automatic double minor if you attempt a headbutt. And it's a major in game if you connect and then a match penalty if you cause an injury. This was never going to cause an injury. This this really wasn't, I would say, an aggressive act as much as it was an intimidating one. This is akin to like a chest bump in basketball or getting up in somebody's face, looking at the, the prize fighters at a weigh-in when they just are trash-talking nose-to-nose. This was one of those kinds of situations to me. So I, I think it, it may have deserved an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, but I don't think, based on the nature of it, I could have justified a headbutt call on that play. I think Chirot was really just trying to intimidate and get, get in the opponent's face, not inflict damage, not cause an injury, not even make significant contact. So I'm going to say the officials got this one right. It, it was technically a headbutt, but by the spirit of the rule book, I, I think they, they erred on the correct side in not making this a double minor or a major as it would have been since he did connect. Okay. Yeah, it definitely was not worthy of a, a major penalty. I'll agree with you there. I also want to chat quickly about the goal that Jake Gensel scored for the Pittsburgh Penguins in Game 7 against the Rangers. That was First a beauty. Off, this is why players do the soccer thing before the game, don't you think? I mean, this was, this was a perfect example. There was incredible hand-eye coordination, a lot of points to cover as we review the goal to make sure it was a legal goal. First off... He kicks the puck. So that is that was definitely a deliberate kicking motion. So if if it had gone directly into the net, then it's an easy no goal. But the he hits the puck with his stick and then it becomes where does it contact the stick? Was it above the bar? Does it contact the stick or does it not? There's a lot of pieces to this puzzle that you have to assemble before ruling it a good goal. Absolutely. And the league is looking at all of those things to the best of their abilities and you mentioned it, Todd, that the kick is legal to kick the puck to yourself as long as it doesn't go directly in. So then Gensel plays the puck with a high stick. It wasn't above the shoulders, so it was legal to play the puck that way. And then we see the puck go directly in. So now the officials are looking at the contact that led to the goal being scored. You've got Shesterkin with his glove up. You've got Gensel with the stick batting down. And it's where the puck makes contact with the stick that determines the legality of the goal. It, it has to be at or below crossbar height. This one was a tough one. The, the angles of the camera didn't give us a clear shot. There's a few that make it look high. There's a few that make it look legal. And it, it comes down to camera positioning around the arena, unfortunately, that just the slightest difference or the slightest height adjustment in that camera might give a, a misleading 
perspective on where the puck and the stick made contact. So I was surprised with this one. It was a call to goal on the ice. I didn't think they had conclusive evidence to confirm or overturn the goal, but the league's announcement was that they confirmed the call on the ice. It was a good goal. So great job by Gensel. Impressive play. I mean, this is this is right up there with any of the, the fancy goals or the Michigan goals or anything like that that we've seen this year. I don't recall seeing a guy kick a puck, bat it out of the air, all with the skill and the speed that Gensel did on this play. And, and the NHL's review said it was legal. But man, puck tracking, Todd. Puck tracking would have told us. Chip in the puck. It's easy. It's e- And you know what? I'm glad that it was it was confirmed or it was allowed to stand because it's a spectacular goal. And it's going to make for spectacular highlights for years to come. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe not for Shesterkin as much. In the Rangers, okay, fair but, enough. Yeah, but uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful play. And not even much Shesterkin could have done on that one. You you look at Gensel moving the puck and that's just an impossible play for a goaltender. So so good on Gensel for making it work and keeping it legal. Let's go back to the Calgary-Dallas series as well and play that involved the hulking defenseman Nikita Zadorov, who delivered a big hit to Dallas forward Luke Glendening on the play. Glendening was shaken up, help from the ice, no penalty was called, and many felt justice was not served. After a thorough review, according to their Twitter handle, the Department of Player Safety absolved Zadorov of any wrongdoing. I watched this. I watched it again. I went back and looked at it a few more times, and I'm thinking, I don't know why there was a hearing for this. I mean, it, it, it was a hard check, open ice, but it was as clean. It was a textbook. It, it was. I mean, we saw his, there was an elbow extension that appeared to be out prior to the hit. That was more Zadorov's body position than it was putting an elbow out. When there was contact, it was shoulder to body. And what we looked at on this play is that you have Glenn Denning reaching forward for the puck. He put himself in a dangerous position there. He lowered his head by crouching to reach for the puck. And Zadorov six foot five. So... We've seen plays like this where the league has offered an explanation for their determination not to suspend a guy simply because of the size difference and because the player receiving the hit put himself in a dangerous spot. That's that's what I expected on this play. I think the officials got it right. I mm-hmm. think the league got it right. And, and maybe you want to have that hearing just to discuss it. And maybe it's to stress that you need to watch your elbows or you need to watch the headshots. But ultimately, they, they had the conversation and either their intent was just to discuss it or Zadorov's team made the right counter argument to say look he's six foot five the guy was in a rough spot head contact was not avoidable on the play and that's that's one of the league's criteria here but I, I think ultimately it was an unfortunate outcome but you have to suspend based on the action not based on the outcome and in, in this case I don't think this was a suspendable act I agree with you. There is another hit that took place recently that I do want to discuss. It's in the Florida-Tampa series, and Lightning defenseman Ryan McDonough, who put on a jolting hit to the Panthers' Noel Achari. Now, he he got whistled two minutes for interference, and I'm kind of like John Cooper, who said, what the frank are you doing to the <laughs> officials? And I don't know why there was a penalty called on this play. This one was a bit baffling. I, I think McDonough did everything he could. He timed it right. The puck was there. It was a clean hit. Uh, it it looked like a terrific play that unfortunately was whistled down for interference. Now, I don't know if this was a moment that the official didn't realize where the puck was and uh, to, to give him a, a little bit of leeway there. The puck was in the air. It was being gloved at center ice, so there wasn't a puck down on the ice, but True. It, it was certainly present 
and being batted down at the time of the hit. So looked like legal contact to me. This might be one of those plays, Todd, that it's based on your perspective, based on real-time action right in front of you. It looked like there was no puck. It looked like an interference call. They whistled it down. And in this case, it's, it's one that I think the officiating supervisor is going to go over with them in the locker room, in between periods, and, and that's going to be one that the guy's going to want to take back. If they were wearing a ref cam, they could have reviewed it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can't say that after every every situation. All right. There was, there was another uh, incident in the Tampa, Florida game as well where Nikita Kucherov scored in the Panthers challenge. It was kind of a desperation challenge and didn't play out. But there was a little bit of contact with the goaltender and they figured, hey, we're taking a shot. Maybe we get a we get a call and we get goalie interference and the goal is disallowed. But that did not happen. Can you explain why? Well, first off, I, I don't blame them for challenging just because you, you've got to go. It was it was late in the game. It's a tight game. It, it's a key goal to make a big difference in, you know, whether it's a one goal game or a two goal game. So you have to challenge at that moment. I, I don't fault them. There was contact and and i think there was enough contact there to justify them making the challenge the issue as it often is with goaltender interference calls is what was the contact and where did the contact take place and that to me is is a critical piece of information here and one that we got some clarification from the nhl on which i think applies to many other situations so todd this is a landmark case in their ruling i think we can use this going forward Video review determined that there was incidental contact between Anthony Sorelli and Sergei Bobrovsky. It was outside of the crease. So being that it was incidental contact in the white paint, it's not enough to disallow a goal. So what does that tell us? Bobrovsky was clearly in the blue paint, but the parts of his body that extend beyond the goal crease, that beyond that vertical plane, which on this play would be his head, incidental contact with his skates or his stick would have negated the goal. Contact with the part of his body that was outside the crease does not negate the goal. So when we look at whether or not a goaltender is in the crease, we're looking at actually where the contact happened. Was the contact in the blue paint? Was the goaltender's body over the blue paint? And in this case, he was outside the crease. They called it by the book. Incidental contact outside of the crease does not negate a goal. So as frustrating as it is and as difficult as it is, as difficult as it is for the goaltender to play his position when he gets bumped in the head, if it happens outside the crease, the goal stands. Okay, so there's a couple of things that I want to ask about yeah, here. So in. first first off, we're drawing a vertical plane from the crease up, just like we are with offside challenges on the blue line now? That's correct. Based on the ruling here, it's, it's that vertical plane. So just because most of the goaltender's body is in the crease, just because he's playing the puck or just because his skates are there, his, his body's there, if any part extends over that, they're, they're going to consider that as contact outside of the crease. And Rule 69 is a little muddy on that when they say if the goaltender is in the crease. Right. Okay. It, well, so he's in the crease, but his, yeah. his head was over the line. So that's the need for that vertical plane. My other question when you think about the blue paint, and that's where all the rules mentions blue paint in terms of interference, there is a red line that goes outside the blue paint. Is that a neutral zone where anything goes? <laughs> it's just the, it's the demilitarized zone. Where <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it's, it's actually a great question on, on where things are when it comes to the goal crease, because the rule book does not specify 
how that line around the goal crease is to be treated. We know that when it comes to offside, the puck needs to clearly, completely cross the blue line entering into the attacking zone. And we know in the cases of the goal line that the puck needs to clear that red line and be in the white paint. So for our purposes, I, I've interpreted the league's rule as that the red line is part of the goal crease and that when the goaltender is in there, anything related to his body is considered in the crease until it extends into the white paint. So I'm going with that, but the, the rule book, surprisingly, Todd, does not define what happens in that small two-inch strip of red. And it does not specify that the goaltender has to be completely across the red line in the blue paint <laughs> into the crease. Oh, somebody's going to call me a jerk for bringing this up. <laughs> That's okay. This is what I do. The the one the one situation this past week that I think got the most attention and uh, induced the most anxiety has to do with the Edmonton and Calgary series and the the drama did not disappoint. Fifteen goals in game one. Matthew Kachuk has uh, the Hattie, and one of them is shall we say semi controversial because once again the damn announcers don't know the rules. I am stunned that this keeps happening. I understand, okay, you don't know, you make a mistake once, but how does this keep happening over and over again that you don't know the rules? And I can't understand why their employers continue to employ them. But okay, here's the thing. Rant, my rant is over now. But <laughs> Kachuk comes out of the penalty box after serving his half of a coincidental minor penalty. When he emerges, the puck finds him, he walks in, snipes, beauty. Okay, so this is a two-parter for 50 points, Josh. Why did he get to come out of the penalty box while Evander Kane of the Oilers had to continue to sit? And why wasn't this play offside? Well, we'll look at the first part, which is the penalty box. And, and remember, the penalty box attendant mans the door. Nobody's jailbreaking without permission. Nobody's <laughs> getting out unless somebody lets them out. So don't don't think that Kachuk is just bailing on his own because his watch went off or he looked at the clock and said, eh, time to go. It was... It was by the book. This was done appropriately. And it came down to a choice made by the Calgary Flames when the penalties were taken. And a lot of folks got mixed up with this. The situation that we had was Oliver Shillington taking a holding penalty. And as play stopped, we had Evander Kane and Kachuk take roughing minors against each other. Typically, we see when players take those types of minors, they're coincidental penalties, and they're in the box together for the duration. In this case... Since Calgary had two guys penalized at the same stoppage, they get to decide which of the penalties is going to go on the clock. And you could see if you were in the arena, you could see the number 19 on the scoreboard. So when the penalties were assessed, the referee went over to the bench or to the captain and said, hey, you got two guys in. Who's on the clock? And in this case, they chose Kachuk to be on the clock. And what that means is if Edmonton scored on the power play, he would be the guy who came out. Or when time expires, he's the guy who comes out. That leaves Kane and Shillington stuck in the box until the next stoppage because there's no additional loss of manpower on the ice. Remember, they were skating five on four right. here. So it was Calgary's decision to decide who gets to come out. They wisely chose Kachuk. So once that penalty expired, he was the guy who came out. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have to match up when you have these coincidental minors. And if you think about it, if you have a, a five on five scrum out there, you're handing out penalty minutes left and right. You're looking right. as an official to offset as much as possible. And if you've got four penalties on one side of the ledger and three on the other, you ask the coach, which guy's coming out? 
nothing else goes up on the scoreboard, just the one that makes it a power play. And that's the guy who comes out when time expires. The rest stay in there until the stoppage. So when you break it down, it makes a lot of sense. But when people are trying to find a reason to be upset about this play or trying to make sense of it, it's a great question on why he got to leave the box first, especially if you're thinking that his penalty offsets with Kane. It doesn't have to since they were all assessed at the same time. Before we deal with the offside portion of this particular play, does it work the same when a team takes two minor penalties at the same time and their opponent scores on the power play? Do you designate which penalty or which player comes out first or is there a process for that they, they do have the option to do that if you're looking at two penalties assessed at the same time and a goal scored that they get to select which players coming out because both were assessed at the same time it's really immaterial which guy comes out or which penalty was recorded first and that's a standard across the board when it comes to penalty assessment you're looking at the time they were assessed not the order they happened in the game or anything like that so if you have two guys going in at exactly the same time it's up to the penalized team to decide who comes out okay very good now why wasn't this play offside oh it but it was but it was he was in the zone and the puck went out <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. And this one doesn't happen that frequently either. It's funny, Todd. Two situations that are in the rule book that are clearly explained, but they're so infrequent that I, I, I can't blame fans for not knowing this. The broadcasters, maybe. Right. I, I, I'm not going to cut them as much slack. From a fan standpoint, hey, we don't see this every day. The puck went into the neutral zone. The Oilers brought it back in. And that's why he wasn't allowed to be offside. And that's why he wasn't considered to be offside. Dreisaitl passed the puck. It went off Darnell Nurse's skate and back into the Edmonton zone. And when that happens, the rulebook says that all attacking players are eligible to play the puck. So had that gone off Johnny Gaudreau's skate and back into the zone, it would have been offside. But because the Edmonton Oilers were the ones responsible, moving a forward pass that deflected back in off their own player, this negates the offside and allows Kachuk to play the puck. And the irony of this play, Todd... This is the situation and the rule that prompted the offside review in the first place. Because when Matt Duchesne was three miles offside, yes. it wasn't that it was missed at the blue line. It was that the official believed that the defending team passed the puck back into their own zone. So he wasn't offside because of a blue line miss. It was this particular situation that the defending team passed the puck back into their own zone, which negates offside, that created Duchesne's offside goal. And it did it again here. See, everything old is new again. <laughs> so the, one more quick one just before we wrap up this edition. Uh, a, a television camera in the penalty box paid the price when a St. Louis Blue player was assessed a high sticking penalty for a stick that really wasn't that high off the ice. This might have been one of the lowest high sticks I, <laughs> I recall seeing. <laughs> Poor Braden Shen, man, he was uh, he was not happy with this one. And he was pleading his case the whole way to the penalty box. You could see him talking to linesman Brian Pancic, trying to complain to the referees that he was down low. He was close to the ice. It wasn't a high stick. The high sticking rule is that you hit an opposing player with a stick above the shoulders. And if his shoulders are low, you are still responsible for your stick. Now, I, I get Shen's protest here. There was some body contact, it, it, potentially interference, which I, I wouldn't have called that as you've got two guys battling for the puck, but they both fall down. Shen's stick goes back. He's not responsible for it at the time. It makes contact with his opponent's face, so it's a penalty. But yeah, an, an interesting situation. And the rulebook does allow on a face-off, there's a little leeway for a high stick because yeah. both guys are bent over. 
that doesn't extend to other situations. So for Shen, it was the right call, but man, he was not happy. And it was the camera that paid the price. <laughs> See, and you you want to put a ref cam back on? Look what Shen can't oh, even yeah, handle. Oh yeah, that would be bad. Cam. That would that could end very badly. Thanks for listening to the Scouting the Refs podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at Scouting the Refs on Twitter and Instagram and follow Todd at Todd Lewis Sports on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe out there. Keep it clean. Watch the elbows. We'll see you back out there on the ice. <laughs>